Hi, everyone. Welcome to this Network Capital book discussion with Dr. Tarun Khanna and Dr. Jeff Jones. They've written a book called Leadership to Last, How Great Leaders Leave Legacies Behind. It's a book that I've thoroughly enjoyed reading and reflecting. And today in this discussion, uh, we're going to discuss some ideas that they advance in the book and have a little bit of a back and forth about it. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Khanna, Dr. Jones, for joining us. Uh, you both had really productive uh, pandemics, like publishing books after another teaching classes. I heard, uh, uh, Jeffrey, you actually redid your garden. So, I mean, kudos for all of you, all of that. So tell us about this partnership. How did you guys start uh, thinking about this book and how did this idea first come to you? That's everyone, that's for you. Okay, let me uh, kick it off. First of all, Utkarsh, thank you for having us. And uh, it's really nice to uh, be part of this community uh, with which I've spoken in the past. Um, uh, it's quite lovely what you guys have created. Um, you know, Jeff and I are like, I like to say it, like chalk and cheese. <laughs> you couldn't imagine two more <laughs> different people. Um, um, you know, Jeff is a historian professionally. I'm an applied math person. Um, but curiously, the previous dean of uh, Harvard Business School put us in touch some 15 years ago or maybe more, saying that, hey, did you know that the kinds of things that I study, uh, this is the dean talking to, to me, saying uh, the kinds of things that, that you, Tarun, study across emerging markets today are exactly the kinds of things that Jeff, as a historian, has studied in the British Empire over time. So in academic jargon, you know, uh, I was exploiting cross-sectional variation at a point in time, and he was exploiting variation, we say time series variation as a historian uh, over time. And that's how we kind of met and uh, wrote a paper, I think back in the mid 2000s, maybe around 2006 or so. Um, uh, and then when Jeff had this idea to begin to record initially audio recordings uh, of uh, iconic leaders, um, and he'll tell you the story of how that started in Chile. Um, I joined in and said, we really ought to do it by video. We ought to do it at scale and do it like 10 times bigger and this and that. And so that led to the creation of the Creating Emerging Markets video database, which for everybody on this call, you know, you should spread the word. It's a free public resource that HPS has created for teaching and research. And we're on a mission to evangelize it. Uh, and this book, actually, one of the, one of the key purposes is, is to get the message out there that these videos exist, that they are clips, they're easy to use, they're completely free, um, and they expand the repertoire of amazing people from whom we can learn something. Um, so that's my my uh, gist of how we got together. Uh, mm. Jeff, you want to talk about Chile maybe? Yeah. I can have, you know, I begin by saying I think we have very complementary skill sets. I mean, you mentioned history and math. I mean, I always say uh, Tarun's very clever and I'm very organized. And that's a perfect way to organize, organize a book, as a, matter, as a matter of fact. But how the project began is interesting for why it's useful. I was speaking, as usual, that history matters at Harvard Business School. And this uh, Chilean shipping entrepreneur, um, biggest shipping entrepreneur in Chile, actually came into my room and said, you know, I wish business leaders and policymakers in Chile would actually look at history because they'd stop like reinventing the wheel, uh, you know, because we, and shipping entrepreneurs are particularly aware of that because the shipping cycle 
is the basis of the shipping industry. And so by definition, they understand historical waves. So I thought to myself, why don't they learn from history? And there's a number of answers, but one answer was there was no history written. How businesses developed, you know, the information wasn't there. Companies had no tradition really of talking about themselves or keeping archives. And in fact, so that's how we started off. We did a pilot in Chile and Argentina and uh, people were willing to speak to us. So it seemed to me it was feasible to begin to fill this gap and a good idea to fill the gap. Um, and the other, the other important aspect of the project, which is worth emphasizing, was that from the beginning, we saw it as a public goods project. So when we went to somebody to ask them um, if they talk with us, we would say, whatever you say we're going to put on the public record is going to be available to, to everyone, including everyone in your own country. In other words, you're not spending time helping Harvard, which has enough resources, um, you're in a way giving back to your society. And I think that was a compelling message um, for many people, actually. Got it. Yeah. I personally found this, uh, this historical perspective and the focus on um, building institutions really fascinating. And I want to discuss that with you uh, in this um, uh, podcast. Tarun, uh, one of the first times we met was actually in China. And you were telling me a bit about uh, collective memory, but in a very different con like context. And you were doing a different project then. Um, but it, it makes the way into this book as well. You focus or you begin this book by talking about collective memory and how iconic organizations are built. Do you want to share a bit about how you've taken that concept into this and why is collective memory important? So um, I can reflect uh, with Karsh a little bit. Um, so we met at the World Economic Forum meeting, I think, in, uh, in Dalian in China uh, many years ago. And my suspicion is I must have been working on a big historical project. Yeah. Uh, uh, the partition of British India, uh, which That's was right. a collaboration with um, uh, primarily historians, but other social scientists from India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. Uh, shockingly to me, it was the first time that scholars from all three countries, which often have tense relationships, um, had come together to study something that has reshaped the fortunes of uh, 2 billion people uh, out of the world's 8 billion today. Um, and uh, one of the things I was struck by in those many conversations where I was really more the head of an institute at Harvard that was organizing it. I had no, absolutely zero expertise in the partition um, as a phenomenon, other than the fact that I'd heard childhood stories from both my sets of grandparents about living through it, um, as many of us from the subcontinent uh, uh, would have had the same experience. Uh, and I was just stuck by how, you know, both the longevity of the of that collective memory mattered even in contemporary times to individuals to organizations to communities and so on um it wasn't a you know a conceptual revelation but it was really in your face because it was so personal um and i think in these stories also you see the ethos you know you see the story of uh, um you know the chetiar families a mercantile community in southern india um, and there's one one very evocative interview in the book um, 
uh, of the gentleman who's behind Nelly Sari's, which is a right. very important uh, sari maker, uh, garment maker in uh, in southern India, talking about several generations in his family uh, who went to Burma along with the Chetiar community, uh, built a very profitable money lending business uh, to the Burmese, which of course was a very rich country in that time in the 19th century. Uh, people often refer to it as the Silicon Valley of that time. Uh, shockingly, when, when you look at Myanmar today, uh, and then traces it how you know they they were smart enough to get out before uh, the Burmese turned against them in the uh, post in the aftermath of the, of the British leaving and come back and set up a new set of institutions. But what runs through all this all this is, if you will, the the, the memory of how to organize these very high functioning dispersed networks of entrepreneurs that that goes through three four five six generations in some ways um and jeff i'm sure will have plenty of other such uh, stories about the idea of memory and how it matters to a historian and to into our context yeah i love that this chapter so much because uh, i found it fascinating that back then the person was mentioning that they wanted to build for india and they were going to Myanmar to train it was like, like just news to me learned a lot from it. So Jeff, I'd love for you to build off of what Tarun said and also tell us what is long during and why is it important? I'm probably not pronouncing it right, but I'd love your perspective on it. Well, our book is, it talks a lot about um, values and one of the striking, um, one of the striking things is how in Indian businesses that we're looking at in particular values are passed down very strongly from one generation to another generation. And people tell these stories about, about these values. I mean, Gandhi, for example, appears in several of these interviews and he's passed yeah. on from grandfather to son to son. So collective memory is, it just comes out as a really, really shaping present day actions and understanding. And I think because of the strength of family business in South Asia, it comes out particularly clearly you can see it in companies, you know, there's a there's an IBM way of doing things and a whatever sort of way of doing things. But it, it's much, much stronger in these like family companies. Well, long durée, well, you know, French was always my worst uh, subject at, at school. So I'm the very last person to even attempt in the long run. I was just looking at things in the long term, right? right? I, I've always been a great fan of looking at things in the long term because you see these patterns and these patterns are annoyingly tend to repeat them, repeat yeah. themselves. You yeah. can look yeah. at like globalization, you can see waves of globalization going, coming, coming down. You see every sort of force as a reaction to it. And I think if you look over the long term, it really helps you to understand the present day too, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't predict what's going to happen, but it positions mm. itself in sort of a, like a wave, I think, and you, I think you can understand where you are. Yeah. That's my understanding of the, the long uh, durée, but I think Tarun uses the word more than I do because of my, yeah. <laughs> my relationship with the French language. <laughs> um. I started using it when I learned when I taught myself French a while back. So, uh, but but yeah, that's the idea. So I think with course, you know, 
one of the things with uh, the reason I'm not a I'm not a historian at all, but I'm a history buff, um, and I enjoy it. And I, I, you know, here's a very silly example, right? Imagine that you were were an individual who uh, had only only lived among dogs, right? And someone said, oh, "What's a dog?" And you said, "Oh, it's anything that has four legs." Um, well, that would be a incomplete description of a dog, right? Uh, because it turns out there are many things that have four legs, uh, right? And um, and so the idea is that, and the same thing applies whether you look. So so all social science learns from variation. You can't just look yeah. at a small episode and conclude things. I think the advantage of history and the advantage of cross-sectional variation is that you put what you're studying in a context, so you don't. Um, reach, uh, you, you don't make spurious inferences. Uh, you don't, you know, confuse correlation with, with causality. Um, these are such, you know, such visceral things to, a, to, to an academic. Um, but in the daily uh, life of business, uh, the daily life of, well, just daily life, you forget this, right? You see something happening and you say, oh, that must have caused that. You, 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 you sort of concoct these uh, fairly biased, I mean, use fairly biased ways of thinking. And there's lots of excellent scholarship on this, right? Um, to draw all kinds of inferences, which are com sometimes complete nonsense. And I, I think that, and then that influences incorrect action uh, on your part, inadvertent incorrect action on your part. Uh, so one of the nice things about uh, looking at the long sweep of history in the context of this book is that um, you can get a better fix on what's happening where. This was actually the one of the themes of the original paper that Jeff and I wrote in 2006 of trying to say why looking at things, um, as we say, over the long durée um, in history is a, is a very good idea uh, to understand. Yeah. Yeah, it's something a real, that, yeah. the real problem in management science is there's almost an inbuilt tendency to say something is new and exciting and then to try and explain it and looking at history can often really puncture that and by doing that it also you know renders mute some false explanations because if something is not new and exciting then you get a different way to explain what what's going on i think yeah personally i think that history in business education is so important as uh I believe it was Twain who said that, right? History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And it's so important that uh, all of us, like, you know, with, with IMBs, get a sense of um, the history as we study different countries and interconnectedness, which you also explore in the book. Um, I loved the focus on institutional change that you talked about. And it's actually very different from, say, one individual creating a, you know, a splash. So contrast that for me and for our listeners that why is institutional change important and how does entrepreneurship, especially the one that you've studied in the book and the paper, um, has created institutional change and how is it different from the flash in the pan, the unicorns, the valuations, et cetera, that we hear of these days? So um, let me start. Um, first of all, I have nothing against unicorns. I think more, more power to unicorns. Um, some young person who is coming up with a creative idea and uh, you know getting to a very healthy valuation, fabulous. I, you know, yeah, I, I it's awesome for them. Yeah, it's fabulous. Awesome. Well, awesome for society also. I mean, presumably, 
you know, there's, uh, as economists say, reveal preference. If they got to, uh, you know, got to a high valuation, it must be because somebody's buying what they're selling. So they must at least think that they're better off, uh, at least in the short run, if not the long run. So, so more part of them. That said, I think there's something really, uh, you know, very special about the people in the book. Uh, that these are people who, um, you know, uh, adjusting for exuberance and the state of capital markets today might might very well be credited with super unicorns or 10 unicorns mm. in the course mm. of their career. Uh, if you had the adequate sort of mental experiment, the adequate counterfactual experiment to run. Uh, but what's really interesting with Gersh is, uh, is this idea that, uh, which has long been a preoccupation for me in my own work, which is if you want to build something lasting in a developing country, you have to recognize the context for what it is, which is it is not always ideally suited to foster creativity. Uh, nothing wrong with the talent. The talent is, you know, universally distributed. Um, but just taking our, you know, my own backyard here, I'm sitting in my office at, uh, at Harvard. Um, if a kid walks in here with an idea and says, I want to, I want to launch a new enterprise. I'm not saying it's easy for him or her to do it, but it's relatively easy for him or her to do it, even compared to say Bangalore. Uh, in India, which is my other kind of home, if you will, startup home. Hmm. Um, it's just much easier. Uh, there's such a thick collection of supporting structures in place to make things happen. So what's special about the people in this book from all over South Asia, but also a few uh, com comparables that we've put in from Brazil, Colombia, South Africa, Nigeria, Indonesia, etc. What's special about all of them is that they haven't taken the conditions in their backyards as uh, as an insurmountable constraint. They have just said, let's do something about that. Now, they could have fallen into the trap that most people fall into, which is um, it's too hard and it's the role of the government to do it. Or if I do it, other people will benefit from it. And so therefore, why should I do it? Um, and none of them have fallen prey to that. And to me, that you know turns out to have worked out really well for them. Uh, but it's also had you know one, two, three orders of magnitude multipliers of benefits for society around them, right? So what's a contemporary example, right? Uh, let's see. So Kiran Mazumdar is in the book. She's a very good friend of mine, old friend of mine. Uh, I would even say, if she allows me to say, it, a mentor to me. Uh, but you know. She's been trying forever, not just building a biotech enterprise, but trying forever to build this thing called, I think it's called ABLE, which is Association of Biotech Something Enterprises. Um, that does not help Biocon at all at the time that it started, right? Because Biocon, in some sense, was biotech in Bangalore. Uh, hmm. But to build this you know, ecosystem out so that other people can jump in and collectively they become much stronger, uh, is an act of, uh, I would say, inspired entrepreneurship. Every bit as important to the long-run structure uh, of that uh, that that milieu as is Biocon itself, the biotech company. So that's an example of somebody who steps out and says that not only will this help me in the long run, or maybe I need it right now, uh, but it'll also help the fabric of society. So that's that's what we sort of mean by institution uh, hmm. building. And I'm sure Jeff can educate us all about how you see this play out in history all the time. Yeah. Well, in our book, it's interesting that it's very, um, 
the process is generally incremental and there was a great deal of learning going on and even very senior people are still learning it's um one of the excerpts is from mr tartar and he's talking about the failure really of the of the car project and it's a very interesting excerpt because he's saying they didn't realize that the base of the pyramid type of consumer doesn't want to be told it's the cheapest ever car around that they have expectations uh you know they they don't want that right and you know that's that's from somebody that's a very good organization and he'd been in business for decades and he's still learning and they're still thinking through what the implications of that and you see that again and again in this this story so it's the process of of learning and absorbing and changing incrementally i think is really 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 interesting change comes slowly and with difficulty for many people in this book uh, but it really makes a difference yeah because they create uh, enduring change which creates value for society over the long run which uh, many unicorns will end up doing hopefully but many of the cat books uh, examples that you've captured in the book they have done that for the for multiple decades and i think that kind of uh, education is useful for business students today and for you know investors leaders around and you do all of this through storytelling and you explain storytelling through the case of say tokville howard zinn so maybe you want to tell us a bit about who these two people are and uh, why did you put them in the book because it's fascinating the particular aspect that you talk about i can read out that particular sentence if you don't remember but uh, i'd love for you to refer well, to go, go go ahead and read it so people uh, if you have yeah, it it'll be fascinating I, it's right in front of me so french di diplomat oquil's narration of democracy in america of a year in his travels in 1837 conjures up the idea of america as a home of individualism liberty and democracy with a healthy dose of free market principles in contrast less left wing historian howard zinn in his people's history of united states offers narration in the form of marginalized they neither experience liberty nor have the freedom to express creativity in the same american society they're all as different as chalk and cheese uh and that's the same expression that Darren used to describe the difference between Jeff and himself but obviously your jokes apart why did uh, you know why did you tell the story and why is people why should people know the difference between um storytelling and the various biases it carries um you know since i'm guessing with chalk and cheese it must have been must have been me who wrote it so oh, <laughs> um i'm trying to remember what what inspired me to write that i think i was just trying to communicate that look here are two um you know serious observers of the same time period right albeit one writing reasonably contemporary times and one writing uh decades and decades ago but looking at the same period um um and seeing things with very different lenses hmm. you know who knows what uh tokwil what was going through tokwil's mind um when he was traveling around uh, around the country at the time uh, but he must have brought his own you know french biases uh, 
uh, to, to the party <laughs> and uh, um, and interpreted data the way he uh, the way that made most sense to him. And I have no reason to think that he was anything but sincere in putting forward his uh, storytelling about what he saw as unique about America. Um, and uh, but Howard Howard Zinn's uh, book, which really made an impact on me when I read it a long time ago. Uh, I forget when, maybe it was when I was in grad school or something when I picked it up. Um, it's so different from the story that you hear about America as, you know, as someone like me growing up in India uh, or as an immigrant to this country or what's e even taught in most schools, right? And recently you've got the, uh, the New York Times coming up with, a, uh, what is it called? Jeff 1657 or something. Uh, this massive project, which is basically saying that America started, I may be saying this incorrectly, but America started um, when the first people were forcibly brought here from Africa. Uh, and that's a very different articulation of what America is than saying the pilgrims landed uh, and so on and so forth. So I think it's really important to um, know um, through whose eyes are you seeing the world? Um, and one of the things that comes through, we hope, in the in the in the in the uh, in the particular excerpts that we pull together for this book, and in the original interviews that are again freely accessible to anybody on our websites, um, is that you see the protagonist, the 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 man or the woman who has done amazing things, really try to situate you in what the world was like where they were coming from, and I can't think of anything more profound and more educational mm -hmm. and more instructional, even in a very practical sense uh, today. Uh, because going back to the point that um, otherwise you are very likely to take well-intentioned packaged insights that are quickly accessible from, let's say, a consulting firm or a business school professor or a guru of some sort and inappropriately apply it to your own context. Uh, and you, you have to have this practice of situating yourself in the context, uh, developing what elsewhere I refer to as contextual intelligence, which is sort of a catch-all term to say, for goodness sake, you know, look at the data. Uh, and I'm the algorithm guy, and I'm still saying the algorithm only makes sense in a particular context, right? It's not a recipe that you adopt blindly. Um, yeah. Interesting that from the point of view of storytelling, there are different stories about Indian business. Right, so a story told in India, at least till recently, was that business was like horribly exploitative, not at all acting in the interests of the not of the country at all. It's changed a little bit recently. Still, that sentiment is still there. Our story is a little bit is rather different. It's a story of these like um, people with strong value sets, um, really trying to do some good for the country even as they build viable businesses. And that comes over very, very, very strongly. It's a different view of Indian business. And I I think I told Tura and I, these days, uh, I'm teaching a lot about the responsibility of business and people are always asking to me, you know, can you name some responsible companies? And I've got, you know, Goodrich, Tantas right up in my top of my list and I'm struggling to find responsible companies in the in the United States. And yet, you know, from at least in the past, any Indian hearing that would think I was completely insane. I hadn't realized that these were 
exploitative companies. So, yeah, so Indian business is a great case of two different stories, uh, I think. Yeah. And I, I, I would say that this is, you know, the thing that Jeff is highlighting as a, as a non-Indian, right, uh, is to say that when he, with an outsider's eye, when he looks at it, this is what he sees. Uh, let me take the insider-outsider lens as an Indian, right? Um, you know, Utkarsh, as you know, I'm parts, parts of many, you know, government commissions and this and that, right. trying to contribute to, in my own small way, trying to add something to... To, to the institutional development of India. Uh, and uh, there is still a deep-seated aversion to the private sector in India in, in large swaths of the private sector, at uh, large swaths of society. Um, and, and, and it comes from people that I respect a great deal. Um, so it's a legitimate view, but it's a very, um, uh, but it's only one view and it's, 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 quite flawed as a summary of everything. Uh, sure, there are, you know, there are exploitative businesses everywhere, including in India and in South Asia. There are corrupt businesses everywhere, including in India and South Asia. Um, but that's true for all sections of society, and it's true in all societies. So it's true of, of the political classes, it's true of media, it's true of, it's even true of civil society is sometimes uh, hmm. not quite behaving the way it pretends to behave. So you know, and and business, I I think you know, um, is it is and can be a real force for good, uh, and we, what we're trying to do is uh, uh, ask people to take uh, another look at it. Got it. No, that's fascinating. Um, you talk about audacity of intent, humility of demeanor, and steadfastness of purpose, and I think that's perhaps how you selected the people you featured in the book. Um, maybe you want to tell us a bit about how you went about it. What did Jeff and you discuss um, before you put this list together and then started working on it? Jeff, why don't you go first? Well, how we selected the characters was uh, not by any sort of random sampling or anything. We had a, we had a view that we wanted to talk about impactful people. Hmm. Um, as the project developed, we widened what we meant by impactful. And so we started with the obvious candidates, the head of the big business houses. As we went on, we went to uh, an actress like Shabana Asmi or NGO um, person like Shamla Dijuja. But all we always that question was, are they impactful? And then we, HBS is very lucky. We have an office in Mumbai. They gave us constant sort of advice. Uh, I'm very lucky because Tarun knows everybody in India. So <laughs> we're, able, we're able to guide the selection in a much better direction than I would. So it's a kind of a, also an incremental process. We, uh, and the type of people we interviewed has changed over time as we learned as well. Um, but always asking this question, impactful, powerful stories to powerful stories to, to tell, I think. Yeah, I would, I would say, um, just to add to what Jeff is saying, uh, 
that impact should not be even remotely equated purely with material success. Uh, that to me is very important to appreciate. And, and uh, entrepreneurship should also not be equated with purely entrepreneurship for uh, personal profit. Um, one of my all-time favorite people is Abed Bhai, he's a Bangladeshi uh, entrepreneur who was, you know, in my terminology, a pretty comfortable fat cat in the 1970s, running major multinational in this part of the world, Shell Oil, hmm. um, when his country was formed, Bangladesh, uh, in the uh, horribly gruesome partition from of East and West Pakistan. And Abed Bhai, as he came to be known, uh, sadly, he just passed away. Um, you know, felt compelled uh, in that time and during the uh, massive uh, cyclone that hit Bangladesh at the same time to do something about the thousands of people who were dying. And, you know, like Jeff says, things are incremental uh, almost all the time. So it's not that he sat down and said, I've got to build a big institution. He said, I need to solve this problem that is not okay for me to not do something about. And he started building ho houses with a small grant from Oxfam uh, for people whose houses had been swept away. You know, today, 40, 50 years later, 50 years later, it's the world's biggest nonprofit by far. Um, I would say it's certainly the best run that I've ever come across. And that includes most companies, um, best run organization. It's highly entrepreneurial. It's probably the only global NGO that is almost entirely financially self-sufficient, hmm. which is an extraordinary thing, right? You look at all the other global NGOs, you know, Oxfam, CARE, Save the Children, everybody relies on grants. These guys generate their own resources. That's entrepreneurship. And it's unbelievably impactful. Uh, and, it, you know, if the world wants to do something in, uh, what are examples in South Asia, Afghanistan, which is in a god-awful mess right now, as you know, or something in uh, in Burma, which again is in a mess. Who do they go to? They go to the Bangladeshi BRAC. <laughs> I have it by saying, you run our outfits in Afghanistan, where the US uh, armed forces failed um, or other interventions from the Chinese and others in Burma failed. Uh, but, you know, BRAC can do it. That's entrepreneurship. It's institution building. It's run according to very sound frankly, business principles. Uh, but the money is used to reinvest in uh, societal well-being. Uh, so we pick people like that. Um, and we, 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 we pick people that I think, without exception, uh, I would guess that at least 90% of random people on the streets in that country would say, yes, that person is impactful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and the third thing I would say, Utkarsh, is that um, such a privilege for us, for Jeff and for me, that nobody ever turned us down. Right. Nobody. And partly it was what Jeff was saying earlier. We said this is in the public good. We're going to create this and leave it free for everybody to, to get to, which we've done um, and are doing. Um, and uh, partly we're lucky enough to be at an institution that I hope people trust in general. And uh, so people are willing to talk to us, even those who've never talked to the press at all. There are lots of, you know, Turkish entrepreneurs and Latin American entrepreneurs 
who never talk to the press, uh, but they, 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 they talk to us on the record for the public good, which is an amazing privilege to be sort of the, the stewards of that and to bring it to everybody's attention. So I'm, I'm yeah. very happy about that. The intent also matters, right? To uh, business school professors of a respected institution, your intent of asking questions or probing is very different from, say, sensationalizing a headline or sort of quoting, misquoting somebody, which, uh, from what I understand uh, from family business owners, tends to be a fear uh, that they run. And you've captured a wide range of uh, entrepreneurs, institution builders, not just from India, but like this Patrick Chalu from the Middle East. There's uh, people who've captured you know as uh, jeff was saying people in india but outside the realm of business who've done interesting things so this entire selection is uh, fascinating people should definitely check it out but uh, in all of these characters that you've picked out there's an interesting relationship that they have with the state the government so to speak and they've had to navigate some of the challenging ways why do you think uh, they had to do what they did and it's is it changing is working with the government uh, becoming easier as times are progressing or is it as challenging as some of the case studies uh, here depict because there's a full-fledged chapter on corruption um and i'd love to see how these builders navigated all of this well i can i can talk at the past maybe We've got sort of I mean, lurid details about the challenges of the license Raj. But yeah, Bajaj, you know, people were waiting like 10 or 15 years for Bajaj scooter uh, and, and things. So the full horror comes out, I think, historically in the difficulties of building a business. And we can see some of the strategies they adopted. I mean, some people say explicitly they just didn't go into any activity that involved the government because they knew they would face issues of, of corruption, for example, which was a clear strategy. Um, and in some ways, the most extraordinary thing is that despite all these restrictions and the corruption, people were able to build very good businesses which provided real basis for growth once liberalization had occurred. I mean, it's quite striking testimony to, to resilience, but it was obviously a complete nightmare trying to build a business in the license Raj period. And the question for Tarun, right, has it got better now? Yeah, I mean, um, so I think the answer to that question with Kush would depend on which country you're talking about, right? If you're talking about India, I would say, yes, it's gotten a lot better. Um, uh, for, for, for a variety of reasons. People are, uh, you know, entrepreneurs are realizing that uh, if you want to have an impact at scale, um, sure, you can be a small-time business person and line your pockets. Uh, and you could still do that, I'm sure, in, in, in many countries, including in India. But is that really going to add up to anything? And uh, even if your sole objective is making money, you're a lot better off being clean, <laughs> making it at scale and attracting institutional investment from the world, which, you know, with its trillions of dollars trying to find a home than it is being small time corrupt. So I think for, for that simple self-serving reason, I think things are changing. Second reason things are changing are, and this is why we have people like uh, Nandan in the book also, right? 
uh, Nandan Nirkani, who, as you know, not just what, you know, what, uh, and, and Narayan Murthy, what Narayan Murthy was also in the book, and Nandan and uh, uh, Shibu and Chris and a whole bunch of other people who built Infosys did, which was to build an exemplar of a clean organization that could be valuable and do good. Um, but then Nanda in his second act goes and does Aadhaar and now hopefully he's trying to do the third act with all kinds of other stuff. Uh, but these are technocrats who are making their skills available to the government. And equally importantly, the government is receptive. Manmohan Singh's government was receptive and uh, uh, the Modi government is receptive to things like Aadhaar and so on. And now you see, you know, the United Payment Interface in India, you see the National Health Stack, so you see this idea of using technology to make the interface with the government a little bit smoother, uh, permeating society. Not easy to do. Um, you know, I've been involved with the with the creation and launch of the Atal Innovation Mission um, uh, in uh, in Delhi under Niti Io, and that's been an enormously fun project. You know, again, decentralizing. Uh, public good creation that the state can play a role in so that it's accessible to the individual entrepreneur, citizen, uh, college student, uh, high school student, and so on. So I do think it's getting better. I'm, 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 I'm quite optimistic about that. Uh, it's complicated, of course, and there are lots of, uh, lots of enormous works in progress and lots of communities in India where the benefits are not reaching, you know, whether it's yeah. ratified by caste or religion and so on. And those need to be called out because they need to be addressed uh, also. But in the main, I think things are a lot better than... I do remember, you know, when I was, I don't know, 13 or 14, that my cousin came to me uh, in... Uh, must have been must have been just when I moved to Bangalore with my, with my parents. My cousin came to me and said, oh, I got a Bajaj scooter order. <laughs> you know, we've been waiting for eight years or 10 years. <laughs> and I remember thinking, that's quite normal, you know. And my father would refuse to bribe anybody for a te for a for a telephone line, even though he's a very senior guy in Unilever. Uh, and so we had no phone <laughs> forever, <laughs> and we lived in one of the swankiest buildings in Mumbai, and we had no phone. Uh, we just absolutely <laughs> would not bribe anybody. So, <laughs> so it's fascinating. Like I've heard uh, there used to be something called a lightning call, evidently, back yes, in the day. Yeah, which, lightning uh, call. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which I mean, most people didn't have phones, and then there was the mystery of the lightning call, which never struck. Um, so, yeah, we've come a long way from there. But uh, it's unclear whether, whether it's because of the institutions that surrounded people or despite them. I often wonder, like, is entrepreneurship flourishing in these countries or these kinds of countries that you've mentioned? Uh, because of the institutions, despite the institutions. Oh, I, uh, I have, I've, I've thought a lot about this. Let me give you my take on it, for whatever, for whatever one person's take is worth. Um, I think it is uh, entrepreneurship is flourishing despite these institutions. So I have no patience with Jugard um, uh, as a, as an institutional solution. So for Jeff and those who are not of Indian origin uh, on this uh, on this on this broadcast, uh, Jugard is just this. Uh, a word in Hindi, which just means that you improvise and make do, right? So there is a school of thought that says that entrepreneurship in, in developing countries progresses because people have to learn to make do and they become intensely creative in that process. And I don't have a quarrel with what I just said in as far as it goes, but the proposition that you can use Jugar to do uh, societal level development 
is absurd. Um, you can take it up to a point and then you have to create the institutions that propel you and everybody around you to a different level. Um, and that I think is what has changed in the last two or three decades is that we move from that to institutional entrepreneurship, uh, partly because societies become more savvy, partly because India has become more open, partly because we've had some successes and those people have volunteered their time um, uh, to, to, to work with the state and the state has volunteered to work with them. A bunch of different things have, uh, have happened, have kicked in. And those should be called out for what they are. Uh, I mean, one area where we have not made progress in India is um, the very limited attention we paid to science and the scientific infrastructure, which again is starting to change. Right, you've got a extraordinary gentleman, Vijay Raghavan, who's the principal science advisor to the government of India, who's a world-class uh, biologist himself. Um, um, but you know, those are institutions that have not been nurtured, and it's going to take, like anything else, ten years, as Jeff said, it's incremental, but it's happening. These um, many of our figures have to work very hard to uh, overcome the institutional voids that they face. We have the story of the Peruvian entrepreneur, Rosario Bazan. Yeah. She's running an agribusiness company, right? But the education system is awful and it's particularly awful for women. So she has to set up schools. Um, Fadi Gandor, a highly successful Dubai entrepreneur, right? He's, he's operating in Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, but the infrastructure is not there. So he's having to create educational and health infrastructure which you know in better circumstances would be provided by by public policy so i mean the lack of institutions really pushes you you have to do things you wouldn't have to do in in the united states and it's and it's tough so i guess you could say an incentive for an agribusiness person to go into education, but it's probably not, probably not the best outcome you can imagine. I think. Yeah, that, yeah that's a tricky relationship. Yeah, Rosario example is a good one, um, and you know, coming back to the structure of the book for a second, based on that that comment, what's nice is that you have Rosario Barzan uh, from Latin America, and then you've got Anil Jain from Jain Irrigation in India. And in a sense, they are facing, you know, at, at least at some macro agriculture level, uh, facing very similar, uh, similar, similar constraints, uh, similar institutional voids of lack of education, lack of agricultural credit, lack of ability to absorb new technology. And they're coming up with fixes, not just for their own companies, but for the sector at writ large. Uh, and that's to be credited and saluted, I think, in uh, every possible way. Uh, and now going back to the previous comment about what are the institutions that are missing in that broad space of agriculture, which, as you know, Karsh, uh, absorbs such a large proportion of our workforce in India and in many developing countries uh, with woefully little contribution to GDP, uh, certainly not commensurate with the number of people that it employs. What's missing is the science. Uh, and, you know, it has gladdened my heart no end uh, to see in the last couple of years how uh, ag tech as an investment sector in the venture community and private equity community in India has really shot up. And I'm an active investor in ag tech because I think it's really important to do. And uh, the prospect of uh, 
really changing the lives of uh, farmers, poor people involved in agriculture, as well as everybody in the agricultural supply chain, all the way to, um, you know, my mom and dad who are living in uh, uh, Gurgaon and eating the food that comes out of the farms. The prospect to touch all their lives is uh, quite extraordinary in a very short period of time. So it's, it's great. Uh, so you can see both the um, adaptation to the institutional voids, uh, the uh, circumvention of the voids, uh, the amelioration of the effects of the voids, and over time, uh, the use of science to really catapult us to a non-Jugar uh, level in some ways. Understood. Um, I loved this aspect as well. The same characters kept back coming back in different uh, segments of the book, and you could also relate, like Bangladesh, Peru, Lebanon, Syria, India, maybe there are some commonalities. So I think the readers of the book um, will enjoy that aspect and connect the dots between um, the various points of view. So talk to us now a bit about Shumpeter and how he makes in, uh, his way in the book and why it's people to understand why, as you say, economic change cannot be explained through economic factors alone. Jeff, is that you or is that me? That was definitely you. <laughs> so of course you're picking out all the sentences that i wrote <laughs> so um so yeah this is a this is a line that um you know my background's in applied math and then my phd is in like mathematical economics so um and i teach a class at harvard college that uh i think our economics department would not easily want to teach because I started by saying that, um, you know, I love having access by virtue of my training to economic reasoning as a tool in my toolkit, but I refuse to be held hostage by it. Uh, you know, it's a useful, uh, you know, tool in a toolkit, but there are other useful tools and toolkits also. And I was very taken by uh, that particular line in Schupeter's uh, uh, you know, theories of economic development uh, that said, as you just articulated, that you cannot ex explain economic dynamism purely by economic factors alone. And these days, the economics profession has come to that view also reluctantly. Um, and what, what we as economists have done is we've uh, appended the term behavioral to everything, right? So mm -hmm. economics has become behavioral economics, finance has become behavioral finance, strategy has become behavioral strategy. It's a way of us acknowledging, the economics profession acknowledging that, uh, you know, you you can't mathematically model everything so neatly. Um, and they're, you know, I'm a big believer in mathematical models that they, that they are parsimonious way to organize messy realities. I get it. Uh, but there is a role for, uh, uh, for other forms of thinking uh, for uh, for immersion, uh, sort of almost anthropological immersion, if you will, in the phenomenon for thick description that the anthropologist Clifford Pitts used to used to talk about in his amazing writings. Um, I once wrote a short piece called uh, what was it called? Clean models and dirty hands uh, was the title, and I think that summarizes my worldview, which is there's a role for clean models where you abstract from reality and you put forward a parsimonious description of complicated things. But there's a role for dirty hands, which is you take the clean model and you go and say, put it in front of the phenomenon and you say, okay, well, it explains this, but look, it doesn't explain this. 
and you go back mm -hmm. and, and do a better clean model. And that iteration is how good scholarship uh, proceeds, right? So someone like me would, in my early scholarly days, write a clean model and then go to someone like Jeff and Jeff would say, well, you know, I mean, I looked at this in detail over 100 years and this doesn't sound like at all what happened. And then I'd have to redo the model. And that's how good scholarship should work. Yeah. It's interesting that um, at Harvard, Harvard Business School in the 1940s and 1950s, they set up a center for the study of entrepreneurship. And Schumpeter was in it. Uh, my business history predecessors were in it. Sociologists were in it. And they were all coming, they were looking particularly at non-Western countries and asking questions like, why isn't entrepreneurship developing this so much? What was the wrong? And they put all these like factors, soci sociological, cultural, social together. Um, and then that was kind of lost as academic disciplines became more and more specialized and people wanted clean models about, about, about things. But in, yeah, uh, what they were doing, I think, repays a lot of revisiting because I think they realized the way that you're really looking at complex systems and single explanations for complex systems are never very good, I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, the word meritocracy appears multiple times in the book. And I know that both Tarun and you have uh, would have discussed including this word. Um, you both teach at a very well-known meritocratic institution, I would think. And uh, one of your colleagues, Michael Sandel, has written a book about you know, the myth of meritocracy. Tell me your thoughts. Why, uh, why do these entrepreneurs mention meritocracy multiple times? And um, what's your considered view on the subject? Is entrepreneurship or the development of entrepreneurial ecosystem in these countries largely being meritocratic? Jeff, are you going to answer it? Well, Jeff's trying to think of what the answer <laughs> is. And I'm not sure in India has been meritocratic, given that you know, the nature of Indian society, mm. there are certain advantages coming from certain backgrounds, I think, and certain family connections, which tend to work against um, meritocracy. That's, that would be my, that would be my, my take on the, on the situation. So, um, so on this, I do have a considered view for reasons I'll explain in a second. Um, but on Jeff's specific comment, I would note that, for instance, if you look at the um, commentary of uh, M.B. Subaya, uh, yeah. in the book, or you look at Rahul Bajaj, or you look at Adi Godrej. Uh, Sayyid Babar Ali as well, he mentioned. Babar Saab, Sayyid Babar Ali from Lahore. Um, in, in all of them, you'll see that, of course, they recognize that maybe their uh, descendants um, would have disproportionate advantage by virtue of their position in society. But they do take steps to try to make sure that extremely unmeritocratic outcomes at least don't happen, right? Yeah. So saying that, in the, saying that not everybody, I think Rahul Bhai is the most um, in your face about it, uh, as is his usual style, 
uh, he will say that you know uh, all the fingers of your hand are not the same, right? So right. all my children and nephews and nieces are not going to be the same. And some of them should be running the business. Some should be you know uh, doing something else. Uh, and you so you do see that attention to meritocracy at, at that level. But Jeff is right. In the main, there are too many parts of developing countries, all developing countries, and India is no exception, South Asia is no exception, where very vast swaths of the population simply don't have access uh, at all. And this has been uh, a preoccupation of at least the last 15 years of my professional life is to, again, in a very, very tiny way, do something about this. Um, um, uh, there is a, a, a you mentioned Michael Sandel. Uh, Michael was kind enough to endorse another edited book that I'm uh, that I that that will be published uh, by Oxford later this year globally, called "Making Meritocracy," and it's written with the historian of Imperial China at Harvard, Michael Sonyi. Um, and it really took me out of my comfort zone because I had to work with, of course, historians like Jeff, but philosophers, <laughs> anthropologists, uh, mathematicians, lawyers, to really think about the foundations of meritocracy in China and India from antiquity to the present. Uh, so I have spent a lot of time thinking about how, first of all, um, I do think that the people in, in our book, in the Jones and Kanda book, are first and foremost pro proponents of meritocracy. And that's the right way to think about them. Um, but it's still the case that meritocracy is a work in progress in, in developing countries. I think even in, honestly, in developed countries, and sure. I think yeah. some evidence in the United yeah. States, it's even... Oh, absolutely right. right. Absolutely right, yeah. Yeah, we're coming towards the end uh, of the session, but I do want to ask one or two more questions if you guys still have time. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, the final section of the book talks about the invisible hand, like Adam Smith creating responsible value. And there's, uh, you know, we've discussed Milton Friedman in the past. Um, with the examples that you discuss, what do you think like invisible hand means in today's society? And how are some of the entrepreneurs that you've mentioned, especially, uh, say, institution builders who are probably doing it in the NGO space or in the art space? Um, in that context, does invisible man, hand mean anything? And uh, if yes, um, what's your thought process there? I mean, I would only say that you know, I often think Adam Smith has been somewhat abused in his writings about the invisible hmm. hand. And I, I would say it's always important to remember that he had this other character, the impartial spectator. Yeah. That, you know, this ethical sort of conscience thing always saying that the invisible hand the market if you like only works if you have certain ethical guidelines or guardrails to make it work uh, and we have a bunch of characters who actually have impartial spectators in there visible in when they're talking about which is very very interesting I think, I, I think that's a wonderful way to put it, Jeff, uh, to remind remind us all um, 
remind me for sure and and the listeners that invisible hand goes hand in glove if you will with the impartial spectator um, um, and with course to your you know to your your more mechanical response to your question does it work in let's say the art sector I would say yes in pockets um, hmm. in pockets um, you know you see you do see uh, you do see uh, the market mechanism working in major cities in so-called art markets even in India uh, it's quite alive and well um, auction houses you know galleries museums uh, that are working on partly commercial principles uh, so you do see the invisible hand even in social sectors um, but again the invisible hand you know requires there to be the two preconditions of uh, fair access to information uh, so that you know the buy side and the sell side can come together hmm. uh, and um, the reassurance of uh, fairness in the transaction so that if you and I exchange something and either of us is unhappy we should have access to an adjudication remediation um, which is an aggregate construct and it doesn't always work so those are both works in progress in developing countries it works in progress everywhere actually but it's, but certainly in developing countries uh, it, it's an issue so the invisible hand you know again going back to my clean models and dirty hands is a nice clean model of how things should work and then there's really the dirty hands of reality <laughs> where things uh, where you have to where you have to take it with a grain of salt awesome uh, just last question i know tarun you've written about trust and jeff you've studied history which is in a way also a study of trust and so how has um, um how's trust evolved through generations of these large iconic entrepreneurs that you've studied their relationship with uh, uh, their families the context that they operate in and is there something that we can learn for the 21st century in the times to come well trust all you know, one thing you learn is trust takes a long time hmm. a long time to be built and that's you know a story of uh, Goodrich or something or Tata's. It's a story of you know repeated actions slowly building like trust and confidence in the in brand. I think so. Trust is nice to have, and I think it's only built only built slowly, and I think it can be easily lost as well. Yeah, I would I would say it's I would even go so far as to say it's pretty much at the center of the plurality of the stories in the book, if not the majority of the story of the books, maybe even the majority. Um, maybe even the unanimity, depending on how you uh, how you how you read each, each set of stories in the book. Uh, but it's absolutely central. In fact, one of the first academic papers that Jeff and I wrote uh, off the uh, of the video interviews before we even wrote this book or put together this collection was a was a was an academic paper on reputation and trust being the centerpiece that ex, that goes being the central construct that goes the furthest in explaining all these episodes uh, than anything else so if you think about the most parsimonious description of what would explain many of the stories in our database not just the ones in the book but the 
150 plus entrepreneurs, uh, most of whom are not in the book um, for space reasons, if nothing else, uh, that it would be trust, uh, their ability to inspire trust. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just is there anything that I should have asked you that I haven't or any parting message uh, for our listeners who, who's going to be watching it later or who are watching live? Uh, yes, a very procedural thing, which is, as, as I was saying at the beginning, uh, the motivation for writing the book was to draw attention to a free resource. Um, and so, uh, and the free resource, you can just Google HBS Creating Emerging Markets Project and it'll take you to hundreds of hours of amazing video uh, of all these people and more. So spread the word. Sure. Um, and yes, check out the book on Amazon. Feel free to give uh, comments and feedback to Jeff and Darren. I really enjoyed and learned a ton from the book. Thank you both for your time. And I look forward to having you back soon. I know your new books are coming out. As I said, a very productive pandemic, I must say, for both of you. Thank you, Utkarsh. It's nice to be with this group. Yeah. Thank Take you care. Much. Thank you. Bye-bye.